Let me turn you back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, please. The one and only is how we've entitled the message uh, even tonight. Let's just seek the Lord a word of prayer as we come uh, to the preaching. Gracious, eternal, heavenly Father, we thank Thee again for Thy presence. We thank the Lord uh, for the truth of this hymn. Yes, there's one, only one. And Lord, we thank Thee for the one who is the blessed Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that Thou might bring us into this passage. Thou might give us understanding again. And, O oh God, Thou would bless that truth to each and every heart, particularly those that know not Christ as their Savior. And we ask that Thou might, Lord, uh, give that grace tonight for a man or woman, young person, to bow the knee and to acknowledge Christ as their Lord and as their own and personal Savior. Thank the Lord, we're still in the day of thy grace. Thank the Lord, thou art yet saving souls. And we pray, Lord, that I might do it even again, for Jesus' sake. Shut us in by thyself. O God, close out even the distractions of the devil and the world that thou would put in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that we might be shut in with thee just for this time. And Lord, thou would do us good tonight. Lord, to that end, fill us with thy spirit. O oh God, we're conscious we need the help of God. We need the infilling of that spirit of the living God uh, to empower us. And Lord, it's not by might nor by power, it's with my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we pray that thou might, Lord, give us, Lord, those words that must and shall prevail. Do us good. Help us. We cry to thee, for we ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. In our consideration of the uh, disciple Peter, it seems we have been uh, considering him in various passages over just this last number of weeks of a Sunday evening. Well, he proved through his preaching on the day of Pentecost that the Lord Jesus was alive. If you turn back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, uh, 24, you will see it. And here he's standing and he's preaching. He says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. In chapter 3 of Acts of the Apostles, he proved that Christ was alive by the miraculous uh, change that was wrought in the life of the lame man, the lame beggar that was seated by the gate of the temple. And that man was healed through the power of Christ. And please remember, men and women, that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, And they are those who are mentioned even in verse 1 of chapter 4. They were there before the people and before these apostles. And yet they were those who didn't believe in that Christ was raised or in the resurrection at all. You think of Acts 23, a later occasion in the ministry of Paul And verse 6 it says, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude were divided. Why would that be so? Because the Pharisees say there's no resurrection. Neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. 
And there Paul understood that half of his congregation at that time were men who didn't believe in the resurrection. And here they are again, even at the uh, commencement of the book of Acts and the ministry of Peter. And so these in particular, they wanted to put a stop to the ministry of Peter and the other apostles. And you can be sure that when God is doing a work, that the devil will be out of the street and to prevent the work of God going forward. Well, you remember when Nehemiah and Ezra had a heart and a desire to do a building work in Jerusalem. The devil's cried were there. And the devil's cried were there seeking to put a halt and a hindrance to the work being done. The Tobias and the Sanballats were very real. And they called Nehemiah to come down and to meet with us. But Nehemiah refused such an invitation as he was doing a work for God. Men and women, I want you to understand that the powerful preaching of Peter was here the target of the devil. And so the authorities rose up against him and the others. This was effectively the beginning of the official persecution of the Christians. What do you do when someone tells you to stop preaching? What do you do when others don't want you to share the gospel and of what Christ has done for you? What did the apostles do? They had been laid hold upon. They held them to the next day. But you see verse 4. You see the word of God wasn't bound. For it says how be it. Even though they were held. How be it. Many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about five thousand. And when they were brought out the next morning. They just continued where they would left off. Because being filled with the Spirit of God, they told the message to those that were in authority. You know, the call today is for the preacher to water down the message. And many have given in to that. And many have sought to couch the gospel in a shroud of social garb. But when we read Acts chapter 4, where the apostles were to preach the message of the gospel under the threat of suffering and of arrest from the authorities... They did so without watering it down. And no matter what the religious authorities taught or thought, their desire was to preach the whole counsel of God. These men had saw what God had done for the lame man. He stretched out his hand for alms, but that day he received much more and something of much more value. He was healed in body. He was saved in his soul. The power of Christ was to do that work that he was never to be the same again. And Peter again took the opportunity to further preach the message of saving grace. But while chapter 3 verse 2, verse 12, is before a congregation, chapter 4 verse 12 is before the council. Yet the message is exactly the same. You see, the message is of the one and only Saviour. The one and only. I want you to come to that little text. I want you to consider men's notions from it. You know, there are plenty who will scorn by saying the Christian life is negative. It's a list of do's and don'ts. And in our so-called politically correct society, where we're told to be tolerant of everything and everybody, even though the same rule doesn't seem to apply to others, 
Where there's no toleration of Christ, there's no toleration of the things of God. Many are openly opposed to the Christian faith and to the way of life. We're supposed to be tolerant of it all. Well, it's important to draw our attention to some basic fundamental truths that are found even in this text and these words. Here are words penned under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and they're instructing us that there are not many ways to be saved. The false notions of men that are abroad which have permeated into much of modern day preaching is that there are many ways in which a soul can reach heaven. All roads lead to the same place. And so you can take the road of the Muslim or Catholicism or Hinduism or or something else, even materialism and all of the rest of it, but it all leads to the same end. Well, the scriptures do remind us about the ways of men, you know. Because Proverbs 14 and 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And many will find that out when it is forever too late. Oh dear friend, understand from my text that these words point out the great truth that there are not many ways to be saved. There are not many ways to get into heaven. There is no salvation found through good works or else a dying thief on the cross would never have been saved. He would never have had the assurance that the Savior gave him that day where he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He had no opportunity to do good works. But yet he was converted to Christ. There's no salvation in church affiliation or ordinances. The dying faith had never the opportunity to worship God in the synagogue or to take part in the ordinances of the church. He was dying on that cross in his final hours. And you think even of Nicodemus, a religious man who was part of the hierarchy of the temple, that man who came to see Christ by night, yet he wasn't saved. He was steeped in religion, but still was a lost soul on the way to a Christless eternity. The Lord needed to instruct him, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He needed to experience the new birth from above, and so does every soul of Adam's fallen race. You see, my text says, neither is there salvation any other. Born in sin, shaping in iniquity. We are not fit for God's heaven. There must be that change wrought within us whereby our sin has dealt with. It's taken away, never to be led to our account again. The Lord said, ye must be born again. I tell you, salvation is not found in belonging to a church. Neither is it found belonging to a Masonic order. Where the first commandment is broken, where God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I would say that's a message in itself. God be merciful unto darkened souls who are trusting in any of these ways to be saved. You see, our text says it. Neither is there salvation in any other. And this is what Peter was emphasizing before these priests and the rulers of the temple. And what Peter was stating here is what Paul was also to write to the church at Ephesus. You remember the church at Ephesus was a city that was given over 
even to the worship of the goddess Diana and other gods. And yet he reminded those that those believers, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Understand there are not many foundations to saving faith. If you draw your attention to the previous verse, you'll notice that Peter speaks of an edifice. He says in verse 11, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, the psalm. He speaks about an edifice there. He's speaking about the chief cornerstone. Rejected of men, chosen of God, but. He draws them to consider the foundation upon which everything else is built. But there's only one foundation. For neither is there salvation in any other. There's one head of the church and chief cornerstone. You turn back, or turn over I should say, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's writing to the believers in Corinth. And he says in verse 11, Let me read verse 10 to you. He says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's the only foundation. He's exhorting the believers there to be careful of what sort of building they're engaged in. Look at the words of Ephesians chapter 2, just a few uh, books over, and verse 20. Ephesians 2 verse 20, and he says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Again, Paul is bringing out the very same truth. And maybe we don't fully appreciate what he's using as an illustration there. When he speaks of Jesus Christ, he speaks of the foundation of the apostles. They preached and the prophets, they prophesied of the Lord. They spoke of Christ. And he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, men and women, God used men in the Old Testament to reveal the Savior. To reveal the only head and foundation of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is this. The illustrative part of it is this. The cornerstone in the Jerusalem temple was 41 feet long. It was a massive stone upon which everything else was built upon. That's what uh, Paul there is alluding to. It was a massive stone. We don't think so much of the uh, chief cornerstones these days. As long as there's a good foundation, then everything goes up on it. But there was a chief cornerstone in those days of the buildings. And there is the illustration that Paul is bringing out before even these people. There are not many foundations to the church of Jesus Christ. There are not many foundations of saving faith. Oh, there's much talk about faith today. But it's not all saving faith. For saving faith is not found in an object. It's not in some feelings that a person might have. But saving faith is in the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved this church and who purchased it with his own precious blood. Now tell me, have you a saving faith tonight? 
Are you on the road to heaven and to home? Assured that one day that you will be there. Are you standing on this solid foundation which is Christ Jesus of whom Peter is found speaking of? Are you depending on something else tonight? If you are, I want to tell you it's sinking sand. It's sinking sand. And it's taking you to a lost eternity in hell. You see, we sung it earlier on. Some may trust in good works or opinions, if they may. That might be what you are depending on, walking out past me at the door in just a few minutes' time. But I wonder, could you say, like others in the meeting house tonight, Hallelujah! I'm depending on the blood. That's where you need to be depending upon. Because you see, there's only one foundation. And that is Christ. It's not man's notions. Man's notions will take them to hell. But here is what Peter is bringing out, even before this council, even before these authorities. He says, neither is there salvation any other. But we know we could go on, because I want you to see the mighty name. Peter proceeds to speak of that name we're in exclusively. Salvation is to be found. For, he says, there is none other name under heaven given among men. The name to which we must give Consideration too has been given by God. Therein, of course, resides its authority. Christ could say, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This one has been given by God. And that is the source of all salvation. It's not in man to be able to save himself. Man is dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins. But God who is rich in mercy has given one who can save. It is that name under heaven among men. The only name, the only saviour is one who is perfect, given by God, and yet he was to dwell amongst men. The message to Joseph was, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means saviour. He shall save his people from their sins. Through this text, we uplift before you the God-man. God manifest in the flesh. For unmistakably, Peter is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his glorious person here. You see, it was Jesus of Nazareth whom he mentions to his captors in verse 10. He says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you hold. It was through the power of Christ that that lame man at the gate of the temple was unable to stand and to go forth into the temple rejoicing over what the Savior had done for him. And when the crowd stood in amazement, seeing what had been done, it's Peter who reminds them, it's nothing of us. It was by faith in the name, in the person of the Lord Jesus, that this man was made strong. You look back at chapter 3, verse 16. He says, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. 
Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He makes sure they understand it's nothing of us. It's all of God. It's all of that name, that mighty name of the person of Christ. You see, oftentimes in Scripture we're caused to consider Christ simply by the use of the word name. Let me give you a few examples. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and are safe. Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Or if I can bring you into the New Testament, what a verse. Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you put your name in there yet? Or whosoever. There's the extent, there's the scope of the invitation in the gospel. Doesn't say for the rich or the poor. Doesn't say for the foreigner or the one that's nigh at hand. It says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. You see, there's power and pardon in the name of Christ. And if we consider his name for a moment, and it incorporates all that he is, in his person, in his attributes, in his work, then we realize that as Peter brought the name before these people, he spoke of Christ and him crucified. When he stood at the temple, Peter wasn't afraid to miss the opportunity and to draw the congregation to consider Calvary. You just look over the page, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, whereof we are witness, witnesses. See how many times that Christ is found spoken of there just in two verses? He's the Holy One. He's without sin. He's without blemish. He's the perfect lamb. That's why he can be your saviour tonight. Because an imperfect lamb couldn't save anybody. An imperfect saviour is no good to anyone. But Christ is the Holy One. He is sinless. In him is no sin. But go on. Not only the Holy One. He's the just one. The just dying for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. And then he's the prince of life. A prince and a saviour is he. He said, I am come that ye might have life and have it more abundantly. There's three titles of the saviour just in two verses. And Peter brings him to the cross. Men and women, what Peter preached to that congregation, to that people, was the very same as he brought to the leaders and princes and priests of the temple. He wasn't one of these preachers who changes his message depending on who he thinks will be in the congregation. He's in season and he's out of season. He preached Christ and whom Christ hath crucified. Look at verse 10 again. He says, whom ye crucified. That's really hitting the target, isn't it? He gets him to the cross. He causes them to consider the one who is placed on yonder middle tree. He reminds them of their guilt. Whom ye crucified. 
It was the chief priests. It was the scribes and the rulers who cried unto Pilate that Christ be crucified. And they moved the people to do the very same. I just want to recall to you Matthew chapter 27 and the words of verse 20. It says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Verse 22, Pilate says unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, That's the chief priests, the elders, the people, the multitudes, Let him be crucified. And they set the robber free. What shall you do with Jesus, which is called Christ tonight? That question comes to your heart. Dear loved one, I take you afresh to the cross. For there you too must take your place among that crowd that day. It was for no sin of his own. That the Savior was to be lifted up upon that old Roman gibbet and crucified, but it was for your sin and mine. He was that sinless substitute, dying in that guilty room and stead. Look at what he was to suffer there. You begin to realize what the consequences of your sin really is. That which you take pleasure in, that which you enjoy for a season, that which rises and stinks in the nostrils of a thrice holy God. It meant the God's holy one having to go to Calvary. And there bearing the sins of all who will ever trust in him. Bearing it in his own body. Shedding his own precious atoning blood to pay the penalty for sin. If a people were ever to be saved. And set gloriously free. I uplift before you tonight. As I trust I do every time. I stand in this pulpit. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his once for all sufficient sacrifice for sin. That he freely offered on Calvary. Because there's no salvation any other. For there's no other name. Under heaven. Given among men. You see, also in this name is the conquering Savior. For verse 10 doesn't leave him on the cross. For Paul, Peter goes on to say, not only whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The only name in which salvation is to be found is not stinking in a Judean tomb tonight. He's not on the cross tonight. The message of the angels was... He's not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Thank God he's a risen, conquering Savior because his work was finished and satisfactory in the Father's sight because he fully paid the debt that none of us could ever pay. He was raised again the third day over death, over the grave, over hell itself. He has conquered the great adversary, the devil. Wounded him at the cross. And he's alive forevermore. For you see we read that he's entered into the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. And he's done so with his own precious blood. And Peter knew it. Peter knew it. For it was the risen Lord. 
who met with him along the seashore. You remember what we were looking at a couple of Sunday nights ago? In Acts 21, the risen Christ, who said to him, Peter, lovest thou me? Peter was restored, and he was given a work to do. And he goes forth now, and he speaks of the conquering Savior that was alive, and seated at God's right hand. And men and women, he's alive today. He's alive tonight forevermore, expecting that one day his enemies be made his footstool. His power is still the same. His power hasn't diminished one iota. That power is still able to save all who call upon him for mercy and who are bound and held by many a snare of the devil. I wonder, will you take the place of the penitent tonight? Recognizing, I'm not saved. I haven't got Christ as my Savior. And the preacher's telling me of the only means of salvation, the only Savior, the one and only. I wonder, will you recognize that there's salvation in none other than that of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, we've looked at men's notions and we've considered the mighty name. But I want you to notice closing tonight man's necessity. I want you to see the must or the necessity in my text. You see, God says through a servant, look at the end of it, we must be saved. That's God's message to all men and women, to all young people tonight. That's the message I must deliver. We must be saved. And we must be saved because man is lost. He's lost because of his sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all come short of God's mark of perfection. We have sinned. We've fallen in Adam's uh, transgression. And that is why the Savior came on a rescue mission. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's depicted in Luke 15 as the shepherd who goes out and seeks the sheep. That was lost. And the farmer will know, the shepherd will know. The sheep is an animal that will get lost very easy. Head down, through the ditch, through the hedge. It doesn't know its way back again. Men and women, that's how the scriptures describe you and me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And because man is lost, he then is in danger of being eternally lost in the Christless eternity one day. For die in your sin and you cannot be where Christ is. You reject his perfect offering as payment for sin. And one day you will pay the penalty for your sin in hell. In that place where the devil and his angels will be. In that place where the Lord said the worm dieth not. And the fire is never quenched. Because sin must be punished. Either in the God man and Calvary. Or else in you. In a lost eternity in hell. Oh, listen, dear loved one. If Christ hasn't saved you, you don't know forgiveness of sins. You don't know that cleansing in his precious blood. Then I make it as simple as I can tonight. You're lost. Lost in your sin. 
in danger of being eternally lost in the caverns of the damned. And that's why there's a necessity that you must be saved. Because saved is the exact opposite of being lost. The necessity is for you to have a personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not enough to know what the Lord has done. You must accept Christ as your own and personal Savior. That's why I preach the gospel of saving grace. Because it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Men and women, I must preach Christ to your soul. And that is why I seek to present before you the blessed Savior. The only Savior. The one who has the keys of hell and of death. The only one who died an atoning death on that cross. That sinners might be saved. And while to many the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Unto us that are saved it is the power of God. The necessity is that you must be saved. Salvation is found only through that saving name and work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And the necessity is that you must be saved now. I don't want you to miss this. You see, Peter's preaching was for the present. He said, neither is there salvation any other. For there's none other name under heaven. Under heaven, underline that. Given among men, whereby we must be saved. There's an urgency about it. For God offers salvation to the sinner while you're under heaven. It's too late when you're under the sword. It's too late when you're under the torments of hell. It's why you're under the canopy of God's heaven. You see, dear soul, behold now is the accepted time. Behold now is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And that's why as God's Spirit is striving with you that you must be saved. That you ought to come by faith. Tell me, having heard Christ preached, knowing as a lost soul there's salvation to be found in no other, I wonder will you come to Christ now? Remember this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. God says, not the preacher, not a church, but God says, we must be saved. There's the necessity. May God cause your heart to yield to the claims of the gospel this evening, even for his glory's sake. And the Lord might write that little text of scripture well known. Upon your soul. And God bless his word to each of our hearts. Even tonight. 219. Let's just sing a couple of verses please in closing. A ruler once came to Jesus by night. To ask him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer in words true and plain.
you must be born again. Let's sing verses 1 and 4 of 219, and we'll stand as we do so. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Lord, for the plainness of it. Neither is there salvation in any other. We thank Thee there is one and only Saviour. One name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. And we pray, Lord, that I might speak on, I might write that text even in the sinner's heart tonight. They might realize that it's now, while they're under heaven, while it's still the day of God's grace to their soul, as now they must close in with Christ. We pray that I may speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. Lord, that I would bring a soul to recognize tonight as they've never done before. I must be born again. Lord, have mercy. Speak with that still, small voice that wakes the dead. Lord, as it was a miracle for the lame man to be raised, so it is a miracle for any sinner to be saved, raised from death unto life, from the power of Satan unto God. Do it for Jesus' sake. Accept of our thanks for thy goodness toward us today in this house. And part us now with thy favor and in thy fear. For we ask these mercies in our Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.